Bienvenidos. This is a podcast that explores Latinx media and culture in its many forms. I am Dr. Rojo Robles. And I am Dr. Rebecca Elsalois. And we are Latinx and Latin American Studies professors at Baruch College in New York City. In this podcast, we will analyze Latinx film, television, literature, art, and cultures. We will consider how these works are perceived, analyze them, and investigate the real-world reflections and implication of that work on Latinx cultures in the U.S. and beyond. Welcome to Latinx Visions. Bienvenidos, bienvenidas, bienvenides. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone. Um, We've got a special episode today. We have a special guest who we'll introduce in just a moment. But to let you know what we're covering in this episode, we are going to be discussing Jean-Michel Basquiat, a Black American artist of Haitian and Puerto Rican ancestry who grew up in New York. We'll provide background on the artist and discuss a current, as of 2022, exhibition of his art, King Pleasure. Then we will look at some of the connections he had with other artists and some of the theories related to his art. Most importantly, to the theme of our season on queer Latinidades, we will consider Basquiat through a queer lens. Finally, we will wrap up with some recommendations of other queer Latinx artists. But before we get to that, we want to take a moment to introduce our guest today, Dr. Keisha Allen, who has recently joined the Black and Latinx Studies faculty here at Baruch. We're thrilled to have her on the podcast today, and we hope she enjoys the experience and will join us again for future episodes. Keisha, welcome, bienvenida. Uh, hola a todos. Um, <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here, un placer. Um, so I... I'm excited to be here to join you all, especially as you were discussing Basquiat, and I've always been influenced by his work. Um, I remember first getting a handbag with the famous dinosaur and crown and, and wondering what was what is in this handbag? What is mm -hmm. what is this crown and dinosaur about? And in doing more research, I discovered and fell in love with the works of Basquiat. Yeah, we would like to talk before, like getting into the uh, to the, into the Basquiat discussion. Yeah, we would also like to listen and learn a little bit about you. So we have a little some questions. Okay. These are questions we actually in <laughs> our very first episode we also like uh, exchange questions, uh, so a listener can also like learn about uh, uh, about us and who we are. So we have questions for you, okay. uh, and then we will like uh, move on to Basquiat. Yeah, so. So Keisha, uh, tell us about yourself. Who are you? What brought you to Latinx studies? Yeah. And what are some of your uh, research specialities? Hi. So um, my name is Keisha Allen. Um, I am a native of Trinidad and Tobago. So I moved here from Trinidad to pursue a PhD at the University of Maryland. And my area of interest is Caribbean literature. So I study literature by women of the Francophone, Hispanophone, and Anglophone Caribbean, looking at connections between these authors and particularly the linguistic reimagining of the nation, how language impacts the reformulation of the nation in the works of Caribbean women writers. So that is of uh, my research interest. I also look at music, um, how music impacts the revolution of self, um, looking at colonial forms and syncretic connections African troops, how they transform into um, avenues of resistance for women. 
So a lot of my research is based on the Caribbean because that's where I'm from. So drawing inspiration from my own personal experiences, I use that to in my scholarship and in my research to explore the Caribbean and the nuances um, of the Caribbean that perhaps we overlook. Um, so that's a bit about me and my research. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. I mean, there's so much from there that you can dig from and different ways in which you can can come at all of that information. But, you know, life isn't all about research, although sometimes it feels that way as an academic. <laughs> so we also wanted to know, you know, what are some of the things that you like to do outside of your academic life? Well, it's interesting that these words sometimes collide because I love music, listening to music. I wish I could say I could play a musical instrument. I cannot, but I can dance. <laughs> I, can, I sing a little. So music for me is definitely um, a bit provides avenues of release, um, release of, you know, any stressful feelings you may have. So I love listening to music. I love going to shows and, and seeing musicians play. You know, I love being part of that sort of environment. So I would say music is one of my passions. It brings me a lot of joy. Um, also, I like going to the movies. <laughs> I love traveling, exploring different cultures and meeting diverse people. So for me, that brings me joy. So you're glad that now some of those avenues are opening up again after yes. a few years of oh, not being able to goodness. do any of that. So excited. I feel like I have my life back again. So it brings me so much joy that, yes, now I can explore of this and not be sort of sequestered at home and, <laughs> you know, looking at it on TV. <laughs> this is a, a, a podcast that uh, is based at Baruch College, right? We're all uh, Baruch uh, College professor from the Black and Latino Studies <laughs> Department, as a reminder, right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we like to incorporate the voices of the students. We like to incorporate the, the discussions that we're having in the classroom, the, the things that we mm -hmm. are uh, covering with, uh, 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 with our groups. And we would like to also, now that uh, uh, you just like enter into the Baruch College world, yeah, <laughs> how are you liking it so far? Yeah. And what are you looking forward to this yes, semester? Yes. Oh, definitely. I love it. I feel at home being here in New York and being a part of this Caribbean community. Um, I feel really comfortable here and I feel it's as close to home as I can get. So <laughs> love Burke, love the students. The students are amazing. They really are engaged in the discussions of the um, Black studies and women of color. And I enjoy interacting with the students, I think, most. What I'm looking forward to, the Black Studies Colloquium. Um, I'm looking forward to discussions on Afrofuturism, perhaps presenting my own work. So there are so many um, different opportunities that I think I would love to be a part of and mentorship is a big part of what I do as well. So working on and sort of doing mentorship and creating opportunities for more engagement with the students, um, I think that is uh, definitely something to look forward to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the students are my favorite part too. <laughs> <laughs> so before we move on to basket, is there anything else that you want to tell us about yourself, your work or, or your experiences with podcasts even? 
Uh, so I actually am, I'm new to this podcasting world, right? But I did start a podcast at the University of Maryland. It's called Conversations in Atlantic Theory. It's a podcast dedicated to um, exploring ideas gener generated from the Black Atlantic world. So I like discussions on the Black Atlantic and putting the Black Atlantic in conversation in terms of the different um, cultures and people and languages, this melange of cultures that I think is so unique and it's not monolithic. So that's part of the explorations that we, we do in the podcast. So that's something I'm working on and getting my sort of my feet wet into this podcasting world. <laughs> that's fantastic. I love I love a good plug for another podcast. So for those of you out there looking for something more to listen to in this realm, like definitely Check it out. Yeah, thank you. Is where everywhere you can get your podcast kind of thing? Yeah, the Spotify, um, Apple, Apple exactly. all those, yeah. all the good places. We yes. can share a link in, yes. in on our page, right? Yes. Yeah, okay, so, great. To, to. Absolutely. <laughs> all right. Absolutely. Podcasters have to lift up other podcasts. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and Keisha's also like bringing some of those, those ideas today. So I'm, yes. yeah, I'm really, lo I, I am looking forward to oh, that great. conversation. Too. Yes, yes, exactly. So. <laughs> All right. So before we really dig into some of the more theoretical aspects and, and the queer theory and, and that sort of thing, we want to give listeners a little background on Basquiat in case you're not familiar with him. And in particular, one of the exhibits that's currently out, King Pleasure. So Basquiat was born December 22nd, 1960, and he died August 12th, 1988 at the age of 27. That's really young. Yes. He was a black American artist with Haitian and Puerto Rican ancestry who achieved success during the 1980s as part of the street art neo-expressionism movement. Briefly, neo-expressionism depicts their subjects in a raw manner using highly textural and expressive brushwork and intense colors. These are things that had been rejected by the preceding art movements. Basquiat first found fame as part of the graffiti duo Samo, alongside Al Diaz. Samo was short for Same Old or Say More, and it was seen around the Lower East Side in the late 1970s. I will be speaking about that briefly. Okay. <laughs> awesome. I'd love to know more. <laughs> By the 1980s, Basquiat's paintings were being exhibited in galleries and museums across the world. When he was only 21 years old, he became the youngest artist to ever take part in Documenta, Documenta? I made it Spanish, but it's probably not <laughs> since it takes place in Germany. It's an exhibition of contemporary art, as I mentioned, that takes place in Germany every five years. Yeah, he was very active in all over Europe, not only Germany, but uh, Italy, right? And, and, and he was a figure who was uh, always traveling, right, and participating. And his work was uh, deeply celebrated in Europe. Mm -hmm. I think that fits in really well with the thing, types of things that you can bring to a, our discussion, Keisha. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Uh, and when Basquiat was 22, he was one of the youngest artists to exhibit at the Whitney Biennial in New York City. So when we look at his art, there's, there's numerous dichotomies that are present, not just in his art, but also in his life. For example, you know, wealth versus poverty, integration versus segregation, inner experiences versus outer experiences. So for the two of you who are a bit more knowledgeable <laughs> about Basquiat than I was coming into this episode, I'd love 
to know, like, how do you see these dichotomies played out in Basquiat's career? Yeah, um, yeah, you see this paradoxical combination of wealth, poverty, integration versus segregation. And I think a lot of what Basquiat is doing as well is he is sort of invert, he is creating or reimagining certain structures and disrupting powerful structures as well. Because when I think of wealth versus poverty, and you see him sort of donning crowns to black figures, black figures who you would consider to be impoverished, not wealthy, but yet giving them sort of this royal alias and sort of seeing them from the perspective of wealth versus poverty. I think these inversions are important. I think it's part of his disruptive sort of work where he's constantly challenging dichotomy reversing them, reimagining them, and creating his own alternative space. And I think that's important because the power of his artistry lies in these dichotomies, lies in inversion, because through inversion, he creates something new and invites mm. us to think of the, the structure, to think of wealth and poverty in a, through a different lens. Yeah. Love it. And from a biographical point of view, yeah, he was aiming for success in the art world. So he was aiming for wealth, right? Uh, but at the same time, if we analyze and look uh, at his work, his work was at all times uh, discussing, analyzing, unpacking uh, capitalism, right? And seeing uh, how capitalism has destroyed the lives of black people, right? He was using uh, his platform as a painter and as an interdisciplinary artist because he he did uh, other types of work be uh, besides painting to uh, offer a critique on the West and its relationship to the exploitations of black people, right? And and he take us back, yeah, to to the period of slavery and he examines the afterlives of slavery in his work. Yeah. Lots of lots of social commentary then, right? You know, so he's using yes. this social commentary in his paintings, it seems, as a tool for introspection and reflection. And also for identifying with his experiences in the black community, as well as attacks on power structures and systems of racism and oppression. Like all of this is sort of entangled in his art. His art was acutely political in their criticism of colonialism and in their support for class struggle. So over the years, Basquiat's work has steadily increased in value and visibility. One example of this was the 2017 sale of Untitled, a painting from 1982 that depicts a black skull with yellow and red rivulets, I guess you would call them. Uh, it sold for $110.5 million, which was a, a record-breaking price for art at that time. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, and like, it's I, interesting when you think about, you know, so many criticisms of his art as being primitive and childlike. And now mm -hmm. you see the appreciation for his work, that, you know, that people are seeing that he, it was not just primitive. It's the way he was using art and his portrayal of certain characters, the childlike images, because he's looking at how, you know, the black body under colonialism, you are stripped of your humanity of being seen as a man so we have to look at it when you look at his work and you see how people are now seeing the value in what he was doing but was critiqued as being primitive 
Well, the value is there in the monetary value now, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking about also like the dichotomy of uh, integration and segregation, that is something that he also lived in a very painful way, right? Because uh, he knew that as a black man, he was seen yeah, through different eyes in the art world. And when we say the art world, we're talking about predominantly the, the white driven market. Yes, absolutely. Right. And mm -hmm. with white critics, for the most part, that couldn't like really understand the reference he was bringing forth. Mm -hmm. Right. So he knew that he was alienated within that world. Yes, yes. Right. That he was trying to integrate himself into a, a world uh, and a market that didn't really respect him mm -hmm. as a human being and couldn't really like understand his work. Yes, yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, so that is something like uh, 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 that we will unpack yes, more uh, today. Yeah. yeah. So before we move on to that, we want to talk a little bit about King Pleasure, which is an exhibition that is currently on display. It has been organized and curated by his family, which I think is really important when we're talking about setting up an exhibition. And owning the narrative, right? Yes, um, exactly. Yeah, the exhibition is located at the Starrett Lehigh Building in New York City. And according to their ticket calendar, it appears to be running through October 2022 as of right now. Maybe they'll extend it even longer. I know they have already extended. Yeah, it has been very successful, yeah, successful. and people have celebrated the, the exhibition a lot. Yes, yeah. Yeah, the exhibition includes more than 200 never-before-seen and rarely shown paintings, drawings, multimedia presentations, ephemera, and artifacts that tell Basquiat's story from an intimate perspective. These works intertwine his artistic endeavors with his personal life, his influences, and the times in which he lived. Now, according to the website advertising the exhibition, which is kingpleasure.basquiat.com, if anybody wants to go check it out, Jean-Michel Basquiat's contributions to the history of art and his explorations of multifaceted cultural phenomena, including music, the Black experience, pop culture, Black American sports figures, literature, and other sources, will be showcased through immersive environments providing unique insight into the late artist's creative life and his singular voice that propelled a social and cultural narrative that continues to this day. Yeah, one of the wonderful things about the exhibition is how they reproduce different like environments that are that allowed us to understand uh, Basquiat art making process better. Right. Yes. Yeah. So where does the name King Pleasure come from? Right. You know, it seems like an interesting name. And if you don't have much context going into mm -hmm. it. Well, this was actually the title of a painting that Basquiat created in 1987, and it was also the name of a bartender-turned-jazz vocalist who rose to fame with the 1952 hit song Moody's Mood for Love, and apparently Basquiat's father was a big fan of the song, so I'm sure that played a role. Yeah. Uh, as I mentioned, the exhibition has been curated by Jean-Michel's family, and in a video interview for Rolling Stone in April of 2022, his sisters, Lisanne and Janine, speak about the importance of this exhibition and their involvement in the creation of it. They speak about his family being the only people who can tell Jean-Michel's story through the lens of his early life. They took special care to share the way Basquiat was as a child, the family dynamics, and the things that he was exposed to as a child through the choices made in the exhibition. They share how they and their brother are proud of their Caribbean heritage and of being black in America and how they do not allow racism and ethnic prejudice to hold them back. They credit this perspective to the influence of their father and discuss how black heroes and royalty were something that their brother cultivated in his art. 
Yeah. So when I think about black heroes and royalty cultivated in his art, I think about his many depictions of Toussaint Louverture. And when you think of Toussaint Louverture, Toussaint Louverture is an important part of the central to the Haitian or the Caribbean literary imagination and artistic imagination. So when you see him sort of celebrating these heroes, the hero of the Haitian Revolution, you see how these black heroes were of there was a constant preoccupation, relentless preoccupation with black heroes. Again, countering the narrative of the black subject as inferior, as, um, you know, constantly being debased um, by um, Western society. So you see that, that notion, this emphasis on black heroes and celebrating the heroes through his work. Yeah. In, in uh, thinking about the family and an exhibition curated by the family, right, one of the things that they mention when discussing uh, the, the intentions behind uh, the exhibition is how, like, uh, when uh, Jean-Michel died, right, the mother, right, decided to create a, a, a family diary, yeah, to recall the memories they have uh, as a family with Jean-Michel, right? And for those sisters, that was like really important that they, the, that idea uh, stu uh, stood with their, uh, with them, right? And they decided to kind of like uh, create this exhibition, like inspired by that uh, idea of the mother, Matilde of Puerto Rican descent, la, una Afro-Puertorriqueña, right? Who also like in style in Basquiat, uh, uh, the love for art, right? And they wanted to honor the mother but also of course they wanted mm -hmm. to honor the brother but also they wanted to honor the story they shared together yes, as a family yes. i think that makes sense with the way that they set up the exhibition too right it's kind of unique in the way that it recreates rooms from his childhood and you know his studio and a downtown venue where Basquiat made a mural as a way to display his art in its different localities like right? there's music there's videos ephemera like All of this is that's sort of there to reflect Basquiat's upbringing, his identities and personality. You know, the, according to his sisters, the goal of the exhibition is to share who Basquiat was with the world. And this, of course, includes his art, but it also includes acknowledgement of his love of movies, music and celebration. Nightlife, something that we will talk about yes. uh, too, right? Uh, nightlife yeah. was uh, vital to his art making. Mm -hmm. He liked to party. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, according to Lisanne and Janine, King Pleasure has allowed them to feel as though they're doing something together with their brother. And they think of it as a way to continue to exist with some aspect of him still in their lives. They look at this exhibition and the art created by their brother as a legacy they can pass along to their children and grandchildren and as a way to show them a piece of who their uncle was. Yes, no, definitely. I see it as part of cultural memory, these stories that are passed on from generation to generation. But again, through his art, he's telling different stories, stories about his family, stories about the political sphere. So this notion of him as a storyteller, as sort of this um, conduit of cultural memory, I think is really important. Keisha, you are going to talk to us today a little bit about Basquiat's connection to artists and and some queer perspectives, that sort of thing. What do you got for us? Yeah, so <clears throat> when I think of Basquiat's work, I think of the queer, I think of queer perspectives on the human animal divide. Basquiat's oeuvre explores the human animal 
divide deeply rooted in European colonialism that was used to regulate homosexuality in the Americas. So homosexuality was considered animalistic, which in turn provided a moral justification for the colonizers' control and abuse of black people. So Basquiat demonstrates his lack of concern about being marked animal and how human animality in his artwork captures the lived experiences of Black people. So again, when you think of this human-animal divide, it was used to control bodies. And again, you could think of so many perspectives. You can think of Foucault, where he talks about indiscipline and punish, how language is used to regulate bodies. We see again this, this naming and referring to Black bodies as animalistic is used to control and the black person is constantly left with a burden of proof to prove their humanity so this human animal divide is important in queer perspectives because it again shows how heteronormativity and homo and and the, the binary heteronormativity and homosexuality the binary of the human versus the animal is constantly used to again make clear demarcations between black and white between, again, human and animal. So we see, again, how Basquiat's work depicts external features, internal organs of animals, inviting us to reimagine the human animal and calling on us to acknowledge animality rather than hide from it, to acknowledge animality and look at the perpetual burden within colonized communities to prove their worth as human and to participate in European, the European pursuit of being man. So I see Basquiat's um, embracing, he embraces animality and it's a form of resistance because it's taking the colonizer's language, the colonizer's um, torturous tongue and reappropriating it, appropriating it and using it again in a, a way that will empower black people because you're looking at the animal and you're embracing it. So I see his work as an appeal to animality. We are animals, so what is what Andal Gosain talks about in Nature's Wild, where he talks about embracing animality. And Andal Gosain, an Indo-Caribbean um, writer, is in conversation with Basquiat because we see again Basquiat embracing the animal, embracing animality in his work. So I think by looking at Basquiat through the lens of um, his sort of preoccupation with animality, we see how he's disrupting the human-animal divide. And this disruption is, again, part of his work as um, an artist, as someone who has these visual disruptions of um, Western thought through his constant interaction, interrogation, and the way he usurps this divide. So by exploring connections between Basquiat's work and scholars of the Black diaspora, we see a relentless preoccupation with disrupting colonial discourses that have been used to regulate black bodies. So then we think about Paul Gilroy's Black Atlantic, which provides a useful context to understand sort of this complex nature of Basquiat's work and this synthesis between Basquiat and other um, Afro-Caribbean, Indo-Caribbean writers to sort of expand our notion of Basquiat's work, not solely looking at it from the lens of the African-American perspective, because we see him being in conversation with um, scholars of the Black Atlantic. So engaging with Gilroy's approach, I examine Basquiat's work within the context of the Black Atlantic, broadening the scope of the scholarly response to the artist's work. And when you think of the Black Atlantic, 
Paul Gilroy construes the Black Atlantic as a new topography of loyalty and identity in which the structures and presuppositions of the nation states have been left behind because they seem outmoded. So again, when you think of Basquiat's work, looking at the human-animal divide, it seems outmoded. It does not reflect, it's not again, compatible with the Black experience because he's, again, disrupting notions of animality that's, as that's ascribed to the Black body. So again, um, we are looking at the importance of the Black Atlantic. Gilroy talks about music and storytelling within the Black Atlantic cultures. And when we think of storytelling, we see Basquiat as a great storyteller because he tells the stories of queer bodies, of Black bodies, of bodies that have been oppressed under the white colonial gaze and continue to be oppressed. So Basquiat, again, he depicts narratives about um, African biblical legends, tales of slavery and bondage. And again, through these narratives, he disrupts dominant constructs of black, of the black subject that under colonialism. Yeah. I think that that's really fascinating, especially considering the way he is trying to integrate himself into this art world that is so heavily dictated by like white artists and 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 wealthy white individuals who are purchasing yes. this art to try and flip that script on its head to say like, no, I'm here to look at me. It's it's almost like it is. It's taking their oppression and like flipping it and yeah. turning it back at them one one mm -hmm. way he did that was also by rejecting translation so to speak right. and presenting uh terms references about history caribbean history about puerto rico about haiti right about the 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 history of slavery in yes. the americas right but without trying to make it part of approachable yeah for a white gaze right yes, yes. And, uh, and and that is something really clever he did right presenting it on on his on terms yes, right? but yes. making them think that it's like i don't know if they making it think that it's on their terms but making it them think that it's something for them when that really wasn't like he's just making it because that's what needs he the needs sad to thing do. was that uh, many critics understood that as gibberish yeah something mm -hmm. that yes, he was yes. just like uh writing nonsense oh right okay and uh with times yeah uh, those perspectives have changed and there has been uh, a more uh, profound engagement with his work but at the time right the way people look at his work was as as, as this nonsense mm -hmm. guy uh, uh writing random stuff Yes, right. gotcha. that's it. That's it. Exactly. And then you see again how profound his work is because he's really engaging with this narrative of the struggle for freedom. And when you think about his work, he breaks free from the chains that, you know, that are put on the artist. He does. He creates under his own terms. So freedom for him is in his artistic praxis because of the way in which he constructs his work. It's freedom for him to take these figures to look at the human animal divide and recreate created or um, um, recreated and reimagine this this sort of distinction that was created under colonialism. So 
And then you think of the influences on his work. Um, you think of, of course, the influence of constantly you hear about Picasso. He was called Black Picasso. He sort of was, uh, you look at a modernist style in his work, again, which closely resembles Picasso's work. But a lot of what he is doing as well, and he talks about the influence of Picasso. He talks about Guernica, the fact that he saw Guernica as a child. His mother took him to an exhibition of Guernica. Of course, Guernica was Picasso's very famous painting about the Nazi bombing of Guernica, Spain. And he said Guernica influenced him. When he saw Picasso's work, he was influenced by that anti-war sentiment that was captured in the work of Picasso. And I think he looks at this anti-war sentiment and creates his own anti-racist sentiment in his work. And again, looking at notions of freedom. But there is a connection to Picasso. He talks about Guernica, again, another famous um, oeuvre of Picasso that's uh, mentioned. So I think like it's one thing to say, like if, if he comes out and says, I was influenced by him or inspired by him or whatever, but to have people in the art world label him as the yes, black Picasso yes. is so like it, it erases so much of who he is and his identity. I, uh, yeah. And those erasure words were constant. He definitely admired Picasso and he was very knowledgeable about yes. art history in general, right? Like uh, uh, global art history. And he knew his Western art history and he has like people he admired and, and, and he was in conversation definitely with Picasso. But at the same time, he was very knowledgeable about African art, right? Yes. And one thing that is great about King Pleasure is that also like it shows us right the way that he was collecting african artifacts yeah how he was uh, he he had a lot of books about african art right he had a lot of books about the history of 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 uh, the african diasporas right and that is something that the exhibition does pretty well is to show us yeah his references in a physical way by looking at at his uh, 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 at, at his books at the movies he was watching mm -hmm. at the artifacts he was collecting and that allowed us to understand uh, his influence influences beyond the Western canon. That's, uh, I think, an excellent point. And then again, when you think of his influences and the crown motif that pervades his work, that's often associated with the artist's power. Again, you see many times it's again associated with Picasso and there was a painting called um, Red Kings in 1981 where Basquiat portrays himself wearing a five-pointed crown and demarcated by a white line. The second half of the painting depicts Pablo Picasso who is also wearing a crown but a four-pointed one. And again, if we look at it just from the five-pointed and four-pointed, you see him again sort of endowing the black artist with this royal with royalty and sort of associating the black artists with royalty so there is this comparison but again he's carving his own path and again he came to be known as the it came to be known as a basquiat crown because that crown motive was important for him to sort of establish himself as unique from these figures but as within this world, this Western world, under this Western lens, where he was sort of, he felt um, that he was debased in a, in, in a sense. He is creating or donning, um, I would say, donning the crown to again assert his own, his own artistic power, because there is artistic, when you look at his work, it's artistic power. And that power, I think, is captured in the crown. 
There is also a connection with uh, the hip hop movement here in New York and how the the train riders will also like create a, uh, their own logo, so to speak, right? That will identify them. And, and Basquiat was in conversation, although he wasn't a, necessarily a train rider, he wasn't making graffiti on the trains. So he was like riding, and I, I will talk about that soon, right? Riding with Al Diaz on, on Soho's uh, uh, walls, but he wasn't necessarily a train rider but he was in conversation with the rain uh, with the train riders and he knew the power of uh, creating a logo that will empower you yeah as an artist and he was uh, definitely using that technique of the train riders with the crown to uplift his art and to make it uh, a trademark yeah yes, yes. in a way yeah and and honestly keeping it something simple like the crown that is so recognizable anywhere you know I think it it stays with people even longer than some sort of complex icon of some sort, right? Like just here's the crown. This is it. You know when you see that crown what it symbolizes. Yeah, and part of the history of the Caribbean is also the history of crowns. Yeah, mm -hmm. the crowns in Europe, yeah, affecting what was happening in the Caribbean. Yes, and yes. since he was presenting that history, the crown is also like inviting inviting us, yeah, to think about those connections. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really important what you said because when you think of Haiti, Haiti was the jewel in France's crown to lose Haiti through the Haitian Revolution. You talk about that. It was the jewel in France's crown to us constantly this obsession with With, with royalty, especially looking at Haiti, the first free black republic, you see that impact in his work. And then finally, as I close off, you look at his his the crown again, you see the impact of jazz and hip hop artists. Um, for instance, um, you look at Duke Ellington and Run DMCs, he's the king of rock, and these black artists have donned crowns and given themselves royal aliases in an act of purposeful transgression, rebellion against stereotypes imposed on them by mainstream media. So now I will continue with this exploration of uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat through a queer lens. Yeah. So I would like to like uh, start by referring to a panel discussion that happened recently at Centro, the Center for Puerto Rican St uh, Studies, uh, where uh, scholars Frances Negron Montaner and Jasmine Rodriguez, one of the few critics that had analyzed Basquiat's, uh, Basquiat's work from a Puerto Rican and Caribbean perspective, mentioned that one aspect they missed from Kim Pleasure was Al Diaz, right? We, mm -hmm. uh, uh, at the beginning, we mentioned Al Diaz and the work yes. with Samo, so I will like, uh, unpack a little bit on On that work yeah and I definitely agree with them I also missed that part of Basquiat early life right that was depicted in the exhibition uh, as we mentioned the current exhibition takes back Basquiat's Brooklyn upbringing and early days as a, as a drifting artist in New York City seriously there's even a map that depicts all the geographical and creative points uh, that we can associate with him right they created like a, a New York map that it's all about Basquiat and, mm -hmm. and the places he hang out and created art at. Uh, but Al Diaz, sadly, is nowhere to be found. Yeah. However, if we look closely at Basquiat's uh, Basquiat career, he often worked with people around him, but he didn't work with others. Yeah. Famously, mm -hmm. his studio assistant had a hard time integrating themselves into his creative process. There are, of course, a few exceptions. Definitely, Al Diaz is one of them, and Al Diaz was a graffiti artist, a musician, and of course, the uh, pop artist Andy Warhol that I will like talked about too uh, today. Uh, those were the only 
with people Basquiat truly collaborated and with whom he shared intense relationship that although not necessarily sexual, we could read them from a queer lens. Yeah, that is through an examination of homosocial uh, intimacy. So uh, one thing I was thinking is, you know, I've been working with my students on being critical museum visitors, and that includes critical art exhibition exhibit um, visitors. And this idea of not just what is there, but what is not there. Mm-hmm. And and I think it says a lot that, you know, this exhibition is curated by his family, is about his early life, but has very much left out these moments that are, are clearly critical to his identity. And, you know, and I know... And to his Puerto Rican-ness, too. Mm-hmm. And I know that some of the the art was stuff that hadn't been displayed ever before that people hadn't seen. But if there's any inclusion of anything that people were aware of, then that there's no reason to really leave him out, I would think. Yeah. I want to bring a quote from Aldiaz, right? He said uh, in his book, uh, Samo Writings, yeah. In the late fall of 1979, after three years of creating songs, rhyme, poems, writings, drawing on for our friends, a school newspaper, we have lunch, laughing, crying, sharing food, money, girlfriends, drug, booze, wild antics, and every bad habit known to men, Jean-Michel Basquiat and I parted ways. End of quote. In such words, Aldiaz described the trajectory of Seymour, their graffiti partnership, and their very intimate friendship. I am moved by Aldiaz's understandings of writing as a transdisciplinary practice that is intertwined with their teenish, wild abandon, as he calls it. A writing on walls is a byproduct of their being together, of being estar en algo loco, 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 as Basquiat elaborated in a painting slash gift to Diaz in 1986. Yeah, a painting that uh, Diaz publicly regrets selling, not for his current uh, monetary value <laughs> that is really high, but for his emotional warmth. Yeah. yeah. And we could translate estarin algo loco as in being under the influence, being into something extraordinary that breaks molds of behavior, right? I'm reading that locura as queerness from a sensual uh, craziness of the senses, yet not necessarily a sexual point of view. Mm-hmm. Diaz and Basquiat were classmates, panitas, wallas, as they sometimes called themselves, living, coexisting, and creating their language as a duo that roamed New York City streets. Their adventures were documented through Samo. Associate Professor of Media Arts and editor of Diaz's book, Samo Writings, Mariah Fox, remind us that something exceptional, pivotal, and mostly unspoken alchemized when they were goofing around together. Something that wasn't goofy at all, but highly sophisticated, whether written on a wall or not. When Diaz and Vasquez hung out, conversation, words, thoughts, ideas, and even shared silences could flow, bounce, and evolve in an almost inexplicable and magical way. Sounds like even if it was just for a short period of time, they were, I mean, you could even call them soulmates of some sort, right? Like, I don't think a soulmate has to be a permanent thing. And they just really, you know, even just from this quote, we can see that they clearly had a profound relationship with one another that that went beyond just friendship. And and as you said, it doesn't have to be sexual, but that doesn't make it any less queer. Yeah, it's almost social bonding, right? Mm -hmm. Almost social bonding. That's yeah. Fox highlights the synergy between them and how as they banter, they developed sardonic initial word combos, sounds, and phrases that rejected everyday mediocrity and predictability, as queerness does. Yeah, uh, They even created a comic book with characters giving testimony to the wonders of Seymour. 
And according to these fictional people, Samo amazes, changes your mind, gives you the confidence to get laid, is bigger than revolutionary politics, replaces drugs and corporate ambition. Briefly, <laughs> Samo queers your mindset out. Yeah, their tag was a public poetic project that went beyond ego graffiti, as Diaz reflected, and that required aesthetic and fun development. Uh, some of the early graffiti of this period read Samo as an end to mass-produce individuality and media control fats think, or Samo as an end to bourgeoisie principle, think, or Samo as an end to mindwash religion, nowhere, uh, nowhere politics and bogus philosophy. As it's easy to identify, Samo was throwing jabs at the ideological structure of lay modernity as Kisha was presenting and the discourses that sustain socioeconomic class hierarchies in the city, but more specifically, the art world. In different periods, both, both Basquiat in 1980 and Diaz from uh, 2016 to 2018 branched out Samo for their own type of writing. Basquiat moved to more experimental writing territories, while Diaz returned to an acidic social-cultural critique. However, it could be argued that Samo hasn't been as impactful and legendary as when it came from Basquiat and Diaz's Juntilla togetherness. You could yeah. say that Samo hasn't been the same. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Okay, I had to. <laughs> uh, so I want to like continue and talk about Basquiat and now Andy Warhol, the giant Andy Warhol on the downtown queer scene. Yeah. Yeah. Like most societal formations in the U.S., the art world in New York City was deeply segregated. Uh, perhaps still is, right? The hip-hop street art scene was dominated by poor, marginalized black and brown kids from the Bronx, Brooklyn, and Lower Saida, the Lower East Side. And the gallery, the market-driven bohemian scene, was, as you can guess, very white. In mm -hmm. the 80s, in New York City, some of these invisible borders began to be porous. Yeah, we have figures like Fat Fat Freddy, LA2, Ramel C, Lee Quinones, and Martin Wong, among others, influencing the downtown. And when I mean, when I talk about downtown, I'm talking about Soho, I'm talking about the West and its village, mm -hmm. yeah? They were influencing the downtown world, bringing what at the, at the time was considered the next big thing in the art world, hip-hop culture. Well, they weren't wrong. <laughs> they weren't wrong, right? <laughs> Without a doubt, Basquiat pushed through these false divisions and collaborated with these cultural and sexual mergings, very famously with his queer friendship with Andy Warhol, the art giant forefather, godfather of the downtown scene. Notoriously, Basquiat introduced himself in 1978 to Warhol by uh, by going to his table in a restaurant in Soho and selling him his collage postcard. Eventually, when he started to gain traction in the art world, they were formally introduced to each other, and Basquiat and Warhol became intimate friends and collaborators. Yeah. So I, I would like also to talk about uh, before we talked about the, how King Pleasure, yeah, mm -hmm. it's uh, it's paying attention to nightlife, right? Yeah. And how nightlife was a source of uh, energy and inspiration for, for Basquiat. So I want to talk about nightlife, King Pleasure, and his relationship with Warhol under those circumstances of the night, yeah, right? Uh, one important thing that the King Pleasure exhibit does is specifically to reestablish pleasure into Basquiat's na uh, narratives instead of looking at his life as a cautionary tale about drug addiction. Yeah. The exhibition ends with a big party by reproducing a venue where he painted a mural. The curators put on display a collage of photos and videos of the downtown 80s night scene Jean-Michel participated in as a celebration of his nightlife and works. These images of the period are visibly queer and gender non-conformist. Part of the King Pleasure satellite events has also been dance parties in the same queer spirit. 
Another recent documentary, Netflix, The Andy Warhol Diaries, also presents Jean-Michel's and Warhol's constant hangout in clubs, restaurants, celebrity house parties, and even their international trips to European cities. The show extracts uh, Warhol quotes and archival footage to tell its story. The director also uses Warhol's ever-present Polaroid documentation to showcase their friendship. The show doesn't present any type of sexual union between them. Both were in relationship with other partners, mm -hmm. but there is a lot of physical intimacy, cariño, between them. Some of these pictures also show Warhol's uh, queer entourage and the way Basquiat integrated himself into their ways of having fun. The documentary also presents how Basquiat was Warhol's only black friend, but also how he misunderstood a lot of the references of his art, as we were talking about, expressing racist views in his diary and feeling uncomfortable with his blackness and ethnic identity. On the other hand, Andy was one of the only white people in the art world he, uh, Basquiat felt somewhat comfortable with. Although Jean-Michel always mistrusted, mistrusted him and thought he was taking advantage of his fame and edge. Their friendship ended in a bad place, but Jean-Michel was demolished by his death and by how their relationship collapsed. I can only imagine it, it's hard not to be paranoid about that when you are the only one in a space mm -hmm. to not have that constantly be your, your concern, right? And especially with such a giant as Andy Warhol it's like oh is he just is he just like friendly with me because like you know oh I can be his black friend like what right. you know like what motives yes yeah exactly. what are the motives yes. and and it would be nice to just be like yeah a friendship is a friendship but when you're talking about this sort of um, competitive world, mm -hmm. it's never that simple. Right, exactly. So. And there, I think there's a lot of layers to Warhol's and Basquiat uh, friendship that uh, allows for a lot of readings, important readings that uh, take us beyond their actual friendship and, and allow us to understand the, the art market and the dynamics of the 80s art world in New York. Yes. I want to also um, uh, move on to like how the Basquiat family like receive uh, Warhol, mm -hmm. right? Is it, this is a, a there's a, a very good moment in the Andy Warhol Diaries documentary that examined that a dinner they had together, yeah. And I, I feel like it's uh, it's really interesting to think uh, of Basquiat from a queer lens when thinking about that encounter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as we have mentioned, Kim Pleasure is organized like a walk through different rooms in an imaginary Basquiat loft apartment. Some of the rooms in the exhibition reproduce Basquiat's house in Brooklyn. And in a hallway that leads to a replica of their living room, you can see hanging Andy Warhol's paintings of the Basquiat family in his traditional pop art style. Janine Basquiat recalls that when Jean-Michel was on the cover of the New York Times magazine in 1985, he brought Andy and the journalist who wrote the article to have dinner and celebrate. These paintings represent one of the only times Warhol painted black people, but also an important moment in Basquiat's and Warhol's relationship. Jean-Michel felt close enough to Andy to introduce him to his family and share a glimpse of his Caribbean diasporic upbringing. At the same time, Jean-Michel was sharing with the family the central person of his queer art environment. Although Jean-Michel's siblings, Janine and Lisanne, think of and wrote about Warhol as only a friend and mentor to his brother, the Andy Warhol Diaries documentary shows this moment in a different light. One of the commentators in the documentary, painter Glenn Ligon, says jokingly that he wondered what the family thought of, especially the father, about this old white guy with a silver wig. <laughs> 
who the hell my son is hanging out with? He says, point, uh, pointing out to the strangeness, <laughs> queerness of this encounter. The dinner is analyzed or suggested as a coming out moment of source in which Jean-Michel was openly sharing his queer interracial entourage with his traditional black Caribbean family. Although Basquiat only officially dated white women, another contra uh, contradictory aspect of his life, as Lee Quinones, Fab Five Freddy, Futura, and others reflected on the Andy Warhol diaries, to understand him through a heterosexual lens would be a misconception. Mm -hmm. They said that homophobia was and is prevalent in black and brown communities and has prevented the graffiti movement and the general public to see and accept the queer interconnections and interrelationships in Basquiat's life and work. More so, they know the queerness of the 80s art scene and how some of them were overconscious about how they will be perceived sexually speaking if they participated in it fully as Basquiat did, especially during the AIDS crisis. As they invite us to do, queer critical readings of Basquiat and the downtown scene are vital. The documentary is a good place to start, as well as Francis Negron Montaner essays, The Writings on the Wall. I think that, um, you know, pointing out that he only dated white women is doubling like it's not just a commentary on his queerness but also or potential queerness the it's also kind of perpetuating that that phrase that is so often repeated in um caribbean afro-latinx families mm -hmm. of mejorar la raza right mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. that that okay well like, I can't necessarily be who I truly am, so let me do, like, the quote-unquote right thing, the thing that they want me to do, which is to marry a white... Not marry, but, like, to be with a white woman, you know? And yeah. that's... It, it, I think that really speaks to a lot of, of darkness that he might have been confronting. I don't I mean, I don't know. I'm fully speculating here, but I, I do find that very interesting. It also points out to colorism in the Caribbean yes, as yes. well, yeah. right? And how like uh, uh, love relationships uh, are idealized as something that, could, uh, as you were saying, could uh, lead you to mejorar la grasa, to mm -hmm. bettering the race, exactly. right? And, and that is something that uh, you should aim for. Yes. Right. But it's really interesting because at the same time, he was like in his work, he was at all times commenting yeah, on those processes of right. and those racial constructions. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. But at the but same time, he was leaving them mm -hmm. right in a very contradictory way. Right. Yeah. Contradictory. Feeling like unable to maybe escape from them. And, and again, if it's if it's women and there is some aspect of queerness there as well, that that is, again, you know, avoiding those those discussions that would mm -hmm. be about, you know, um, sexuality, but also about race, like all of those things kind of combined. Yeah, you see the intersection of race, gender, class, all of that coming together, which is an important part also of looking at his work, all those intersections. And again, within this Black Caribbean, very traditional family, him bringing, you know, sort of discussions in homosexuality would have been frowned mm -hmm. upon, right? It would have been easier for him or um, much easier for him to date white women or bring, you know, have, having been seen as dating white women as opposed to being open about it, possibly his sexuality, so... Yeah, and I want to uh, finish yeah, my intervention today like talking about the actual art-making process that uh, Andy Warhol and, and Jean-Michel Basquiat had together, right? Uh, as Rebecca and Kisha were saying before, Basquiat paintings are constantly reflecting on colonialism, racial capitalism, and the vulnerability of diasporic black life 
In King Pleasure, for instance, one of the most impactful rooms is irony of a Negro policeman or of or Negro policeman. Yeah, that centers the 1981 painting of the same name, along with others that offer a comment on racial hierarchies in the West. Irony of the Negro policeman's reflects on police brutality and how the police has always been a repressive institution against black people, regardless of the racial diversity of its body. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thinking of this, I would like to also read Basquiat and Warhol collaborative paintings and art making process through a similar critical but black affirming optic. From 1983 to 1985, Jean-Michel and Andy worked together in a series of gigantic paintings, and they created close to 100 pieces. Yeah, uh, The website Warhol.org described their process like this, and this is a quote. Typically, Warhol will start by tracing a pop art symbol or a news headline in, onto a canvas using their overhead projector. Then Basquiat will add a symbol, picture, or words to the painting. The artist will take turns adding layers to each art artwork without much preliminary discussion. Both artists appropriated imagery from a variety of source materials, books, magazines, newspapers, television, advertisement, and even medical diagrams. And of quote. However, I would like to add here the paintings became a space of symbolic and decolonial debate performed in a very physical way. Every time Warhol will try to establish a base with its marking, dreaming, logo, iconography, Basquiat will erase it with his own black culture reference, historical dates, sociological commentary, and black and indigenous figures. I love that. <laughs> in their dialogue, the canvas became a battlefield to enact the imposition of capitalist logic in our lives, but also to see how maroon methodologies, técnicas cimarronas, can dismantle the normalizing power of consumerist culture and create a world outside or think uh, or a world otherwise, right? Both artists deeply appreciated their collaboration and we can read it as another instant of queer intimacy between them. Yet Warhol complained in his diaries about how his section will get resignified by Basquiat. Most critics at the time dismissed their collaboration as a gimmick or has seen it na naively as an aesthetic conversation without much resonance. But if we look closely in, uh, in their collaboration, we can find the history of the confrontation between black artists, capitalism, and white supremacy. Oh, really good. I like the notion of the technica cimarrones and uh, yeah, applying that. I just like that back and <laughs> forth. You know, it's like, oh, capitalism, white supremacy, no. Yes. <laughs> you know, Black royalty, black, yes. you know, legacy. And then that that battle back and forth, I, I feel like that alone is so much more realistic than than most art portrayals that we see. It just that that conversation between the artists. Yes. And that is something that uh, we still need to uncover more from their collaboration. Yeah. Uh, to this day, it seems like something like cool they did together, like a, a proof of their friendship. But there's a lot more to it, I will argue. So as usual, we'd love to give you some other recommendations. I mean, if you're listening to this in 2022 and you can get to the Basquiat King Pleasure exhibit, please do. But um, we have some other recommendations for you. I'm actually going to start out with an art curator named Dulcina Abreu. And, and Abreu is a Dominican-born independent curator, artist, and museum advocate currently based in Baltimore, Maryland. I don't know 
I'm I'm just gonna make that like everybody from Maryland must know everybody. Oh, but unfortunately, I don't know. But I wish I was there to attend for that reason. But um, Abreu's work explores 21st century visual and material culture from the Caribbean diaspora in the U.S., immigration, community organizing, and multi-activism. Most recently, she's actually curated an exhibition with the Latinx Project at NYU uh, entitled Estilazo. Uh, it comes out in like two days from when we're recording this. So <laughs> it will be out by the time you're all listening to it. Uh, this exhibition, which can be enjoyed both in person and virtually, takes the visitor on a journey to experience different eras of queer Latinx club culture and fashion. Through documents, ephemera, photography, fashion, and media, Estilazo presents iconic moments of queer Latinx underground club culture, expanding gender norms, notions of sensuality, and queer fiction. So I think it would be really complementary to what we were discussing today. Yeah, uh, a thing to mention, uh, if, we, if you weren't able to attend Estilazo sometimes, the Latinx project keeps yeah footage keeps uh, uh materials images yeah from the their exhibition as an archive mm -hmm. that is open to everybody mm -hmm. so it's worth it's worthy to to look at their website and see like what uh information what images they they sharing yeah with the viewers beyond the exhibition one of my favorite things about um post 2020 is like the the move to to archive more, mm -hmm. to present more uh, on a digital platform for those who might not have the same access. You know, both of these exhibitions are New York centric. So if you're listening from somewhere else, that might not be an option for you. But having the digital platforms and the archival footage might uh, allow you insight. Keisha, do you have something you'd like to share with us? Sure. So I'm, uh, I'm interested in Domestic Annex, which brings together a group of intergenerational artists whose practices address the private sphere through works related to healing, spirituality, decoration, and the whole. So curated by Susanna V. Temkin, the show is inspired by the concept of Domesticana, first theorized by artist, scholar, and critic Amalia Mesa Baines. In the 1990s, so drawing from Mr. Bain's own acknowledgement that all terminologies must remain porous, sensibilities never completely named, and categories shattered, Domestic Annex expands the artist's original Chicana and feminist theory through the lens of contemporary Latinx intersectionality. So it's something to check out at El Museo del Barrio, October 22nd, 27th, sorry, to March 26, 2023. And I would like to recommend Las Nietas de No No. Las Nietas de Nono. Uh, they're presenting the first uh, group exhibition at Artist Space, a multidisciplinary art location founded here in downtown New York City. And uh, the, this space, the artist space, is hosting Posibles Escenarios, uh, Volumen 1, LNN, the first solo exhibition of Las Nietas de Nono. The collective Las Nietas de Nono consists of Puerto Rico based Afro diasporic siblings, Mulawayi and Mapansi Nono. They create site specific art and weave together performance, reusable and found objects, organic materials, ecology, fiction, video, and installation. This major exhibition will foreground the artist's imaginative approaches to black liberation. In the words, Posibles Escenarios Volumen 1 LNN is a collection of multimedia works that will extend Las Nietas. 
uh, explorations of themes such as the medical industrial complex, processes of expropriation and colonial violence against black communities and the development of uh, micro histories in relation to geopolitics. I saw their performance in La Bienal del Whitney in, in 2019 and their work is very stimulating and strange playing with queer elements in a political way. I will definitely will visit artist space very soon. Thanks for joining us for this episode, Keisha. Oh my gosh, I enjoyed it. Such great discussions, enriching discussions on <laughs> Basquiat. So thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah it was you know? great to, to be in conversation, <laughs> yes, definitely. Yes, yeah, so yeah we absolutely enjoyed having you here this today. And we hope you'll come back and do another episode with <laughs> us maybe next season. Yes, yes, <laughs> we'd love to. <laughs> and thank you to our listeners as well. Be sure to let us know what you thought of the episode. You can always reach out to us on social media or by email follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Latin Exhibitions. Our email address is latinexhibitions at gmail.com. We love to include your thoughts in a future episode. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on both Apple and Spotify if you're able. Ya estamos a la escucha. Nos vemos. Dale. Until next time. Hi, everyone. <laughs>